You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. This particular semester, we are exploring the parables that Jesus told. Last week, we started this uh, particular series by looking at uh, what has been traditionally called the parable of the prodigal son, which is a huge mistake to call it the parable of the prodigal son, singular, because it's not a story about one son, it's a story about two sons, an older brother and a younger brother. Last week, we looked at the younger brother. This week, we're going to revisit it and look at the older brother. And just to kind of cite my sources, uh, I'm borrowing heavily from this little book right here called The Prodigal God by some dude in New York named Timothy Keller. Uh, if you have never read this book or are familiar with Timothy Keller, I would, I would highly recommend that you check this little thing out. It's like, you know, it's like big print and it's like 20 pages. You could easily read this and it's amazing. In fact, if you come up and somehow prove to me on your phone or whatever that you're the first person that signed up for fall conference, I'll just give this to you by the end of the night. So consider it an incentive. But that's what we're going to do. Let me read this uh, little passage, which is in front of you or behind me, and we will uh, consider the second half of the parable of the two sons. It goes like this. Now his older son was in the field... And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let me pray and then we'll try to figure out what that means. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful um, just to be together, grateful to hear your word. I pray that now in these next few moments, uh, your spirit would attend to the reading of it so that our hearts that may be hard and calloused may be softened, our ears that may be clogged and distracted uh, may be um, unclogged, and our eyes which may be blind to see spiritual reality as it really is. I pray that you'd open our eyes. Would you do all these things so that we would see and behold you as more beautiful and more believable than we thought? And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Christopher Hitchens. In 2007, he wrote a New York Times bestseller, which is right here, called God is Not Great. And God is in lowercase letters, just to underscore what he thinks about the idea of God. And if it was not immediately clear just what he thought in the title, the subtitle says, How Religion Poisons Everything. 
And for 300 pages, uh, this dude uh, militantly, aggressively attacks the idea of God and of religion and obviously shows that uh, he's not a fan. It poisons everything. At the very beginning of the book, he defines religion as this, and I'll quote, Religion is a system of believing that if you, believe, if you obey the rules and commandments that God has lovingly prescribed, you will qualify for an eternity of bliss. He says that's the basic formula of religion. If you obey the rules that God's given you, then you'll qualify. God will accept you. And he says this framework of belief is responsible for, religion, he says, is responsible for, wait for it, racism, murder, ethnic cleansing, terrorism, brainwashing, holocausts, sexual abuse, sexual deviance, and other social evils that he just lists on and on and on. Now, I don't know how that sits with you. You may hear that and be nodding in agreement. You may hear that and that makes you angry that this guy's kind of poking at and making fun of what you believe. And you may be shocked to hear this, but Jesus actually agrees with him on this point. In fact, this is the reason why Jesus tells this story that I just read to completely deconstruct everything that we've ever thought about who God is and how we connect to him, how we relate to him. Because if we mess it up, it really does poison everything. So what I want to do tonight is I just want to briefly walk through this story so that we're all familiar with what's even going on. And then I want to just draw out three quick points at the end. Cool? So let's look at the story. The story begins like this. And we looked at it last week. Um, the father has two sons. He has a younger son and he has an older son. In case you weren't here last week, I'll just recap what went down with the younger son. The younger son comes up to his dad and he says, hey, you know when you die, I'm going to get to inherit some of your property, some of your money. I would like that now. In other words, his relationship with his dad was a means to an end. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. So the father doesn't. And back in those days, a family's money was not like in the stock market. It's not like the father liquidated stocks and then gave him some cash. It was tied to his land. So the older son would get two portions of the inheritance. So the son would get two-thirds of the land, and one-third would go to the younger son. So the father sold off a third of his land, third of his estate, and gives the cash to the kid. So the younger son leaves, he pieces out, and he goes off and he spends every penny just partying his brains out. He runs out of money, hits rock bottom, and his life is basically unraveled. And so he decides, I'm going to go home and ask my dad for a job so I can pay back the money. And he comes home, and as you remember, the father runs out to him, hugs him, kisses him, reinstates him as a son. No scolding, no lecturing, no shaming, no conditions. Just welcome back. And then he throws the most elaborate, expensive blowout party and invites everybody in the village to come. That's the story with the younger brother. If you pick up in verse 25, Jesus introduces us to this older brother. And he's out in the field working, doing what a good son should have been doing, at home, working on the farm, working on the land. And he hears all this music and all this dancing, and he comes in, and he comes to find out that this loser dropout brother of his has come back home. And there's a party going on. And in verse 28, it tells you he was angry. And if you think about it from his point of view, this makes a lot of sense. Because this idiot brother of his just blew a third 
of the family fortune on drugs and prostitutes. He comes home and the father seems to reward him with a party. While this kid has been at home doing everything correctly, the father doesn't even seem to care. This older son does what every rational person would do, not go into the party. Because this older son refuses to endorse like the worst parenting job ever. The fact that this father's throwing a party for him makes no sense. And the, the older son is angry about that. This is even going down. Uh, if, the, if you're not angry hearing this part of the story, then you're, you haven't really entered into it yet. So let me help you. Let's just imagine you have a brother that uh, dropped out of UT Martin. And he got the... He got the Fijis kicked off campus there because he was selling heroin in their basement. And he comes home to Memphis, and your dad looks at him and says, Hey, uh, I know this has been really hard on you, um, but I'm going to make you uh, VP of my hedge fund. And why don't you take my credit card and take a couple of months just to recoup at our house in Pickwick? Like, if that doesn't make you angry, because here you are at UT studying your brains out just to make bees and working 20 hours a week stocking shelves at Publix, like, that makes all of your efforts feel really undervalued and, and really, uh, like, like, it doesn't matter. That's why, that's part of the reason why this older son is so angry and indignant. I'm not going to go into this party and endorse this. So he stands outside of the party, and the father comes out to him. And if you see, in verse 29, he starts chewing his dad out. He says, look, doesn't even call him father, doesn't address him, just says, look. These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And the father tenderly pleads with him to come into the feast. He wants him in the party, he wants him to come in. And right before you find out what happens... Right before you find out if the older brother is going to come in, is the family going to be reunited, is he going to come, what's going to happen? Jesus ends the story. He doesn't tell you, just totally leaves it hanging. Now, what in the world is Jesus up to with this story? I think he's trying to show us three things. He is trying to show us what it means to be lost, what it looks like to be lost, and then what it takes to be found. So those are the three ideas that I want to kind of draw out from this. What does it mean to be lost? What does it look like to be lost? And then what would it take to be found? So let's look at what it means to be lost. With the younger brother, Jesus gives you a traditional picture of sin. If if you were to ask anybody on this campus, what are some things that you would describe as sinful? You would describe something like the younger brother, uh, prostitutes, indulgence. Uh, I'm just going to take other people's money and use it for myself at other people's expense. Like just wild, crazy, uh, living that sort of life. (coughs) Anyone would say that kid is lost. That is wrong. That kid is uh, messed up. But Jesus then gives you a picture of this older brother and he totally blows up all of our categories because here is a kid that's done everything right He's obeyed all the rules. He stayed at home. He was a Boy Scout. He volunteers at the homeless ministry. He, like, he goes to church. He's a good kid. And at the end of the story, <coughs> he's alienated from the father too. He's standing outside of the party and he's pissed. He doesn't know how to connect with his father either. 
What Jesus is doing is he's showing you what it means to be lost. That there are actually two different ways to be lost. One is to be really, really bad. One way is to be really, really good. One way is to break all the rules. Another way to be lost is to keep all the rules. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, let me, let me tell you a story that may clarify this a little bit. From Charles Spurgeon, who is a um, 19th century <coughs> Baptist preacher in London, tells the story, goes like this. There was this wise king that owned a kingdom, and one of his servants owned a carrot farm. And one day he just wanted to honor his king, and so he came to his king one day and he brought him a carrot from his farm. And the king sees this and receives this and thinks, you know, I'm so honored that you would give me this gift. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a whole acre of my land that you can farm and do your carrot thing on and do whatever you want with. Here's a gift. But as this exchange happens, there's this other servant in the courts that overhears this and thinks, if that's what you get for just a carrot, what would I get if I brought something better in? So the next day, that servant comes in with like this war horse, like this sleek like stallion, and presents it to the king and says, King, I just wanted to honor you with this uh, horse of mine. I wanted to bless you with it. And the king says, thanks. And there's kind of this awkward silence where he's like, and? And the wise king looks at him and he says, yesterday, <coughs> that servant gave me the carrot, but today you are giving yourself the horse. And his point with this story is to say it's very possible to try to honor God with our obedience and our devotion and the good things that we do, but all of it just be an elaborate and sophisticated way of serving ourselves. Here's all this good stuff that I'm doing, not to get you, but to get something else that I really want. You are a means to an end of what I really want. You see how that's the same exact heart inside of the younger brother. Same exact heart. You don't want the father, you just want his stuff. He's not beautiful to you. He's useful for what you can get out of him. Translation, some of you may be involved in college ministry. You may be a ministry leader. You may be a high school leader. You may go to church every week. You may pray a lot. But deep, deep down, the reason why you're doing it is because you love how important it makes you feel to other people. When you're in ministry and doing godly stuff, that earns you some level of street cred with your friends. That they look at you and think, that's awesome. You do it because it makes you feel good. Or you do all this good stuff <coughs> and you offer up all of your obedience to God because you think, God, I, I'm going to give this to you with the hopes that you give me what I really want now. And what I want is I want you to give me A's on my tests. And I want you to hook me up with a really hot spouse down the road. And I want you to bless my life. In other words, when you do that, when, you, when that's how you approach God, here's this good stuff that I'm doing, and I don't want necessarily you, I want what I can get from you. That's Jesus looking at you and saying, you're lost. On the surface, it looks wildly different from the crazy party person that's doing the drugs and the prostitute thing, and yet deep down, it's the same exact heart. God's not beautiful to you, he's useful to you. That's what Jesus is showing us first. That's what it means to be lost. But what would that look like practically in, like, in real life? Well, this is the second thing I want to show you. What does it look like to be lost? 
And what I, what I want to do is just highlight three different features of this older brother to see if any of this resonates with you at all. The first feature of the older brother is anger. Anger. Look at it in uh, verse 29. Verse 29, excuse me, is kind of the key to understanding why he's so angry. He says, I have served you, literally, I've been slaving for you for years, and you don't reward me with anything. I've done everything right, and I've never gotten a party. What does he think? How does he understand the world? Here's how he understands the world. I should be appreciated and rewarded and recognized on the basis of who I am and what I have done. I should be rewarded on the basis of who I am and what I have done. And when that becomes the thought process in you, you have a baseline of anger in you. Think of it like this. Um, Maybe you're that person that said, you know, okay, I'm trying to be a Christian. Okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm making sacrifices. I'm choosing not to drink. I'm still a virgin. Uh, I do not watch certain types of movies. I don't do certain types of things that other people do. I'm making real conscious choices to follow God. So, God, why can't you make my life work out in a way that works in my favor sometimes? What's the point? Why pray and not party when it doesn't get you anything? Don't you see how that creates a baseline of anger? Especially when bad things happen or good things get taken away, you get angry. God, how could you do this? I'm slaving for you. And this is how you treat me? Steve Johnson was an NFL football player, Buffalo Bills, dropped a game-winning touchdown pass. Could have won the game for his team. Dropped it. And you know what he tweeted after the game was over? It's pretty amazing. He says this. I praise you, God, 24-7, and this is how you repay me? Thanks. You see, the, you see the, the engine in his heart? I do all this stuff for you, and you don't give me even a young goat? Thanks. What's the point? Why serve you if I don't get anything out of it? Anger. Second feature I want to draw your attention to is just how judgmental this kid is. If you look at verse 30, he's, the way he talks about his younger son, his younger brother, sorry, is he says, this son of yours. He won't even identify him as a brother. He's like, this is your problem. This is your kid. He looks down his nose and just so easily condemns other people. And the reason why he does that is because he thinks about reality the same way that Gatorade does. You, you remember those Gatorade commercials from like two years ago maybe? Um, they, they, they were kind of, these commercials are set up almost like hidden camera reality shows. Like someone would kind of come into like a gas station or something and, and want to buy a, a, a thing of Gatorade. And they'd go to the clerk and the clerk was uh, you know, dressed up like an employee, but they were really an actor. And they would look at the person and say, I can't, I can't sell you that. And the, the customer would be really thrown off. And the clerk would say, uh, you've got to sweat a little before I can give that to you. So maybe do some jumping jacks or something. Like the, the customer is like totally weirded out by this. They bring in the manager and like the manager is like Peyton Manning. Like he comes out. It's like some celebrity. And he gives the Gatorade advertising slogan, which is, if you don't sweat it, you don't get it. And that's how this younger kid thinks about reality. You've got to earn it. If you want it, you've got to earn it. You've got to put in work in order to get it. That's how he understands himself. I'm a good person because I've worked hard, I've done the right things, I've made sacrifices, and I've made the right decisions. And when you think about yourself that way, that's how you think about everybody else. Everybody else can be ranked and sized up on the basis of whether or not they've earned it, if they're a good person or not. 
We call that being judgy, but all that is is just you neatly dividing the world into the right kind of people and the wrong kind of people, but you're kind of always on the right side of that equation. That's what this kid is doing, judgmental. The last little feature there is just how insecure he is. So you've got anger, he's judgmental, and he's insecure. Verse 29, he says, I've never disobeyed you. He looks at his father and says, I've never done anything wrong, which is completely delusional. Of course he's done things that are wrong, but he can't see it. He doesn't understand himself to have ever messed up ever, and the reason why is because deep down he's deeply insecure. That false assessment of himself is a byproduct of deep, deep insecurity. Think about it like this. If your self-image is based on how good of a person you are, you will never, ever be able to admit your flaws. You'll never be able to admit how you struggle, how you fail, because to say that threatens your self-image. So you're always pretending, you're always projecting, you're always buttoning yourself up. You can never let anybody see the cracks. You can never talk about how broken and messed up you really are. When it comes time for prayer requests in your community group, you always want to pray for like your chemistry exam instead of how messed up your heart is because it threatens your understanding of self. You remember the, um, not that it's wrong to ever pray for chemistry exams, by the way. You remember the movie The Help? Uh, one of the main characters, kind of the bad character is this girl named Hilly and Hilly is uh, her whole self image is based on her being put together and in charge and how people think of her and that she's better than everybody else and if you remember the story, the plot line of the movie, she is tricked into eating this chocolate pie (laughs) that she thinks is chocolate and it's not, it's something else it's human feces it's a poop pie what she's eating. So she eats this she eats this pie unknowingly and the maid that gives it to her leaks out that information. So now Hilly's reputation is jeopardized. And what was once this sweet, southern, polite, put together woman, like gets transformed into a monster because her self-image is threatened. For her to be, I am good, I'm better than other people, I make the right decisions, and all of that gets threatened. The claws come out, and she unravels because she doesn't know who she is anymore. That's how fragile her self-image is. You put these three features together, anger, judgmentalism, insecurity. You have to hear Jesus on this point, because what Jesus is saying is that there are a lot of people out there, and I would say there's a lot of people in this room that are religious, that are moral, that are obedient, that are devoted, that are good people, that would consider themselves Christians. And Jesus looks at a lot of us and says, you're lost. You're lost. You don't understand God and you don't understand the gospel. You're standing outside of the party, not because of your badness, but because of your goodness. You won't come in to understand the Father because you're a... a, a, messed up, sinful, crazy party animal, but it's because you're so proud of how good you are. That's why you can't connect with the Father. That's what it looks like to be lost. So final question, what do we do? What does it take to be found? If that resonates with you, then you should be asking yourself the question, what do I do? Well, two things, and then I'll end here. Here's what it would take to be found. 
the first thing that it would take is that it takes you, you have to change the way that you see yourself. The first step is you have to change the way that you see yourself. Everybody in this room has stuff about yourself that you're ashamed of, that you hate, that you want to change, that maybe you even confess to God about and want him to fix. Uh, Christians don't do that. Or I should say Christians don't merely do that. Christians do that. With all, we confess our sin. We, we hate the stuff about ourselves. Like there's stuff about us that we're ashamed of and we confess that. But Christians also confess the stuff that we're most proud of about ourselves. Not just the stuff we're ashamed of, but the stuff that we're most proud of. In other words, you have to learn not just to repent of your badness, but to also repent of your goodness. Or to put it another way, we have to stop just looking at our goodness, looking at it, and start looking through it. Because all of our good, a lot of our goodness, a lot of our obedience, a lot of our moral efforts in life are motivated by and fueled by guilt and fear and pride and shame and unbelief. That's that toxic cocktail underneath it all. Let's take me for an example. A lot of you don't really know me. Uh, but maybe you'd say from a distance, oh, here's this dude. He's doing campus ministry. He's in ministry. He's a full-time minister. He's an ordained guy. Went to seminary. He's on campus because he loves Jesus, and he loves the kingdom, and he loves college students. But I'd say that's, a, that's, I hope that's true. I do love Jesus. I love the kingdom. I love y'all. But there is a part of my heart that you might not know, that underneath the surface of everything that I do, I have to repent like crazy. Because it is so easy to make RUF in this platform just this medium that just inflates my ego. To do all of this, even what I'm doing right now, just for self-glory. For y'all to pat me on the back and tell me how awesome I am. That is constantly bubbling up that I constantly have to deal with. Pride. Self-glory. Or I do a lot of this just because of fear. I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want RUF to crumble and implode and fail and y'all hate this and leave because if y'all leave, then that means that I get insecure. I don't know who I am anymore. And so I work so hard on these sorts of things because if I get up here and I say something stupid or I say something wrong or it doesn't land, it doesn't work, then, then it's, I'm afraid of failure. Underneath all of my spirituality is that toxic cocktail of pride and fear and shame and unbelief and I've got to have control. That's what I have to deal with deep down over and over and over and over and over. And so every prayer I've ever prayed needs to be forgiven. Every quiet time I've ever had needs the blood of Jesus to atone for it. Same way with you, by the way. The most intense worship experience you've ever had needs to be forgiven. Every mission trip you've ever been on needs to be forgiven because deep down it's laced with the same stuff that's in my heart and the same stuff that's in the heart of these dudes. Pride, shame, guilt, fear, unbelief. If we are going to be found, we have to start admitting, yes, I do bad things, but also I do good things for really bad reasons. If you can admit that, you are so close to unlocking the gospel and having it blow up your whole worldview. Uh, some of y'all uh, probably know you've heard me quote this many times in the past, but it's, it's such a profound song to me. It's sung by Sufjan Stevens, John Wayne Gacy Jr. Unbelievable song. It's a song that he's telling the story of a real-life serial killer by that name in Chicago. This guy named John Wayne Gacy Jr. in the 70s would dress up like a clown 
He would lure little boys into his apartment. He would rape them and then kill them and then store their bodies underneath his crawl space. And you hear this song and it just makes your stomach turn. It's just horrific. But the last two lines of the song, Sufjan Stevens, he doesn't go, he's not doing narrator mode. He goes into kind of first person mode and he's kind of reflecting over this story. And here's how the song ends. It's unbelievable if you haven't heard it. He says, in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. In my best behavior, not my worst, I'm just like that pedophile serial killer. I think that's unbelievably courageous for him to admit deep down, on my best behavior deep down, we share the same jacked up heart, pride, anger, selfishness. If you can admit that even on your best behavior, it's often motivated for bad reasons, you're so close to being found. You have to change the way that you see yourself. And then the last thing, you have to change the way that you see Jesus. And for that, I want to go back to the kind of the story and we'll end with this. When the younger son comes back home, it was unbelievably costly to the older son. Because if you remember, the older brother, everything was his. That one-third of the estate got liquidated. The older brother took it and ran off with it, spent it. So everything that remained was his. Every square inch of land, older brothers. Every robe, every ring, every cow, older brothers. So when this younger son comes back into the family, what that means is it starts to cut back into what rightly belongs to the older brother. It was enormously costly to bring this kid home, which was part of the reason why this older brother was so angry. Because here's this kid that's blown all this money and now he's getting written right back into the will. But what if this older brother wasn't lost? What if this older brother was connected to the heart of his father? What would he have done differently? He would have seen his father grieve when the older brother went out, when the younger brother went out. And this older brother would have left home to go chase down the younger brother. He would have gone from village to village to village to find him. And when he found him, he would have brought him back home at enormous expense to his own bank account. And the reason why Jesus tells us this story is because he's putting in front of you in vivid detail, this is me. I'm the true elder brother. I'm the true older brother that you need. Because I'm the older brother that doesn't just go from this village to that village to find you. I'm the older brother that goes from heaven to earth to find you. And when I bring you back into the family, what I do is I get stripped on the cross naked so that I can clothe you in the robe, in my robe, the robe of honor and glory and dignity that I deserve and you don't. At enormous expense to himself, the expense of his own life, Jesus brings us in. And when you come to understand Jesus that way, he stops being your handyman that you just hire every now and then to fix your life up. You stop relating to him like a vending machine where you kind of pump in the quarters of your goodness and hope to maybe get spit out some kind of blessing. You start to relate to him as your savior, as your Lord. He becomes precious to you. He he stops becoming a means to an end. He becomes the end. He becomes beautiful to you, not just useful. 
And all of that anger and judgmentalism and insecurity inside of all of us, it slowly starts to get transformed into warmth and empathy and patience and kindness. You can be around wild, crazy, younger brother types and not just dismiss them with condemnation. You can actually relate to them and be patient with them and kind and loving to them because you know the same thing that's in his heart's in my heart. I'll end with this. The reason why Jesus does not end this parable is because he's inviting you into it so that you can end it for yourself. He's inviting you into the story to say, hey, you're the older brother. A lot of us are older brother types and we're standing outside of the party and we don't want to go in because we're so good. And he's looking at us and he's inviting us in. Are you going to come in? Are you going to connect with the heart of the father? Will you tonight repent of your goodness and come to discover something so much better? How will you respond tonight? That's the question. That's the invitation for you. Let me pray. Father, you um, always comfort the afflicted, and sometimes you even afflict the comfortable. For those of us in this room that, that this just feels like a, a sledgehammer to their self-image, I, I pray that it would be, that they would see that and experience that as a real act of grace. That whatever self-image we've constructed of ourselves as being good or put together, I pray that you would smash it down and enable us to see who we really are, that we are in great need of a Savior. Yet don't leave us there. Remind us and show us again that we have a great Savior for our need. Help us to see and to treasure and to delight in Jesus as being precious and beautiful, our great Savior who has given himself for us. I pray that that would melt our hearts, that would give us freedom and courage to admit what's really true about us. Would we be the kind of people that are loving, courageous, empathetic, patient, kind? Do that in my heart. Start with me and then go on to these friends of mine. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.